Well, it is a special joy for me this morning to be able to share this time with Vicki. I'm up here a lot, uh, but I'm excited about us doing this together because it truly is us together as a team in life and in ministry here, but you just usually don't get to see her. For those of you that have not been here a long time, many of you might know what she looks like, but I imagine there's lots of you that would have no idea who my wife is. So Vicki and I have been married for 33 years now. We've been in ministry those same 33 years together as a married couple. We have five adult children now, ages 20 to 30, and we're headed into our 25th year here at Grace Fellowship. We came here in December 1995, and my first day on the job was January 1st, 1996, when we came here to be a part of a church plant and met in Turkey Foot Middle School and then Dixie High School and then Scott High School and then bought a farm here and uh, bought the farm and moved into our first front half of this building in 2004. And I can tell you, both of us together are amazed. We both easily cry when we think about what, is, what God has done here at our church. It is exceedingly, abundantly, That's beyond right. all that we could have ever imagined or hoped for. I was just hoping, driving over here to 35 adults, that I would get a job that was sustainable and I could be a pastor and they would pay me and I wouldn't have to work at Red Lobster at the same time. But this is more than we'd ever hoped for. To see the lives changed, multiple mm-hmm. campuses... A counseling center, just exceedingly abundantly beyond. But some would know some, some of you might know nothing. We want you to know, and that's what we're going to take some time today to talk about, that also in these 24 years, there have been some incredible seasons, not incidents, seasons of suffering and trials that we would have never chosen had we been given the choice and asked, hey, you want to go through this? We would never have chosen. We both continued to keep moving forward, but these things were going on at the same time. From 2002 to 2010, some of you were here then, I suffered with a very rare ear condition that they struggled to diagnose, but a guy at at Christ Hospital finally diagnosed it as patulous eustachian tube, where your tubes stand open. And you might think, no big deal, big deal. (laughs) So it it makes your own voice sound garbled in your head and very strange and distorted so that you can't understand conversations with other people. You don't want to be around other people and you feel confused and stupid. And I just wanted to pull away and shut down all contact with people. Then one of the worst things I did once they finally diagnosed it is I googled patchless eustachian tube and learned there's an entire network a support group of people who have all quit their jobs and no longer speak, and they aren't around people, which is exactly what I wanted to do. And I was like, oh, my goodness, no, 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 I can't, I can't do that. I can't do that. Then some of you have some awareness. For about a decade and a half, 15 years, we were thrown into a nightmare, I mean nightmare, of teenage and young adult parenting messes. Oh, when you go through a season of teenage or young adult parenting messes, it can feel like someone's just hooked a hose to your side and it's just sucking constantly your emotions. It's exhausting physically, emotionally, the embarrassment, the confusion. What did we do wrong? We must be terrible parents. I no, This doesn't happen to other people. On and on and on and on. It was horrible, the trial of the end. You know, you still need to go on and do the next thing that you're supposed to do. And, and, and their thing that they're doing usually is happening at 1 and 2 in the morning, which, is I, which I tend to sleep then. That's when I like to sleep. And you just can't hardly figure out what they're doing and when they're doing it and how they're doing it because you need to stay up all night to catch them doing it. Just exhausting with courts and police and oh. And then in July 2017, Vicky lost all movement. Of her arms, her legs, control of her body, terrifying. And I was in Montana teaching in a conference, and and I'm learning all this long distance, thousand miles away. And they rushed her to the hospital. They couldn't figure out what's wrong. And after a battery of tests, a neurologist finally diagnosed her with transverse myelitis. Also very rare. Just like they told me with my ears, they said, we don't know why you have this. This is so rare. It's unusual that a male your age would have this, but you do, and there's no cure. Same thing with Vicky. They said, this is something that one in a million get. 
And again, there's no cure. They said, there's nothing you did to get it, and there's nothing you can do to make it go away. In the goodness of God, it isn't what it was two and a half years ago, but that sent us into months where she was in incredible pain. The most pain that I've seen her in. And she's a trooper. She's had five kids, and she's pretty robust. And she literally said to me, I don't know that I can keep living like this or would even want to live like this. It was horrible. She didn't sleep for three weeks. Now, I tell you that to just say that's just what God has used to teach us some things. But at the same time, when you stay in a church family as long as we have, our hearts go out to you. And we struggled even deciding whether we should do this because we know so many of you have suffered far worse than us. Far worse. As a pastor, I know so much and she knows so much. We know nothing of the gut-wrenching trauma of divorce. We know nothing of losing a spouse that you've been married to for decades and now you're alone. We know nothing of the death of a child. So many of you have suffered far more than us. But as we talked about it, we love you. We're part of the same church family. We want to shepherd you. We decided God has taught us some things. And so this is not us from the high ground saying, oh, look at us. We've suffered the worst and we've got it all figured out. This is two beggars sharing with a room full of beggars where we found bread. Because we find that everybody is suffering in some shape or form. And if you're not right now, you probably will be at some point. Where do you find grace? How do you persevere? How, how do you keep going in the face of suffering and trials? And so that's what we'd like to do. This is not everything that we've learned. We brainstormed back and forth together and we had to narrow it down to this. We want to just share with you a little bit of what God has taught us. Number one, you will find out how much you need God's word. I found in times of trials, it really helps me to stop and realize we actually have access to the God of the universe. I mean, really think about that. We have access to the God of the universe. And this has helped me through times of trials to run to him because Jesus can't be fuzzy when you're going through times of trials and suffering. And I had to learn to make Jesus a, pro- a priority. And that's not because I'm some super spiritual woman. It's because I'm, very de- I'm a very desperate woman. That will lead you to God's word. Because my thoughts can quickly get to dark places that lead to fear, anxiety, depression, depression, sadness. And I need regular times in God's word to help me realign my wrong thinking, to see God as bigger than my problems. And to give me hope to persevere. And at different seasons, this has looked different ways. Sometimes I've read through John MacArthur's Bible plan. You're supposed to get through it in a year. It usually takes me about three. Brad's always ahead. He usually reads about 20 days ahead. I'm like, that's good, baby. You go. I'm not doing that. I'm ahead now. I'm yeah. already on January 1. That's my point, yes. <laughs> so I've used J.C. Ryle's commentaries on the gospel I like them because he's very devotional. He explains things. When I'm kind of tired in the morning, I can't think straight. He kind of explains to me what this verse means. Right now I'm doing the New Living Translation, the Chronological Life Application Bible. It's about that thick. It's probably going to take me about 10 years to get through that. (laughs) But my point is, do something. And I I meet with people, and they're doing nothing. And I'm like, "Uh, you're going to go down. You You can't function really well and bring God honor if you're doing nothing. But it doesn't have to be 40 minutes. Just start with 10 minutes and go up from there. Doing 10 minutes, people think, well, that's so lame. Well, 10 minutes is better than doing nothing. Day after day, week after week. Start with 10 minutes. Set a new goal for the new year. I knew I had to get God's perspective on my life or I'm not going to do well in life. And after getting out of the hospital, I had to really mentally prepare for the nighttime because that was, to me, the worst time because my family's asleep. During the day, I had kind of put thoughts out of my mind of how I felt. I was more active. I wasn't thinking about it. But when I would lay down in the bed, I was so uncomfortable with all these tingling nerve pain. And then when I stood up, I was uncomfortable. So I thought I had to have a game plan to make it through the nights. So um, some of the things that I've done, because I think when you're going through trials or suffering, it just zaps you mentally, physically, emotionally. A lot of times you're not sleeping well. So once again, all the more, you have to figure out what am I going to do to make it through this to God and, get, and bring God glory through it. One of the things I did was um, I love the version app on my phone. I would just listen to Psalms at night, just wander around with little headphones in 
The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down on green pastures. He restores my soul. Like, okay, Lord, I need that. Restore my soul. It's so good. There, I'm not having to think. I couldn't read the Bible at 3 in the morning, but I have someone speaking it to me, realigning my truth, realigning my mind to focus on truth. Another thing that had really helped me was just listen to Paul Tripp's sermon. He has a sermon series on 1 Peter. Every morning, about 2 a.m., me and Paul lay there in bed. Here we go through the whole sermon series. Um, I love Pandora. I love to put good Christian music on. Just like we sang that song earlier, songs are so good because they repeat the same phrase over and over. Just like we sang, I'll trust you. I'll trust you, God. I'll trust you, God. Your ways are higher than my own. Then they come around again. I trust you, God. I trust you, God. Pretty soon it's infusing hope into your soul. Several books that I also read were very helpful to refocus my thinking. My book, um, Trusting God by Jerry Bridges, is falling apart. It's a great book on trusting God. Dave Pallison has a book called God's Grace in Your Suffering. Wayne Mack has a book that was very helpful, Down But Not Out. Um, another book by, called Hope When It Hurts by Kristen Weatherall and Sarah Walton. These things really help me to see Jesus in my trials. So you have to plan, once again, not because I'm some great spiritual woman. It's because I'm a desperate woman. So you have to run to God's word. And the other thing that, that's worth keeping in mind is, is I know the struggle. When I was at the worst of my situation with my years and I was battling depression, oh my goodness, I didn't feel like reading the Bible. I didn't want to read the Bible. I didn't want to think that hard. But you have to. And here's what I've found that I wish more people understood when you continue to push, and I think sometimes some of you hear and, and think, oh, well, she's still reading our Bible. I guess it was easy for her. It wasn't. So you're not new. You're not the exception. Everyone who's suffering really bad stuff and in a trial find it hard to still read God's word. But you lean into it, and here's what you'll discover. You can learn things in the dark as you're reading God's word and in a pit that you just don't see or learn on a mountaintop That's in right. sunshine with the winds of God's grace in your sails. Don't hear me saying I can't learn anything on mountaintop sunshine moments. I'm grateful for them. I hope there's some more of them in the new year. But I want you to realize if you'll continue to go to God's word in the dark, in the pit, there are things that he'll teach you and show you. And it's almost like you find yourself saying, how have I not seen that? How have I missed that? There it is that will just stand out like gems when they're set against the darkness of suffering and trials. Not every day. Don't hear me saying like every day was amazing. There were days that I went there and it's like, all right, the word of the Lord. And hopefully this won't offend Vicky. I mean, there's times that we have meals and I think, all right, that is food. That will sustain me. The meal of my wife. I'm glad I showed up for this. This is probably going to keep me going. And then there's others like, oh my goodness. Oh, amazing, like a restaurant. But it's best if you just keep showing up. Keep showing up. God's word is no different. Okay. Every day doesn't seem, send tingles up your spine and, and like a lightning bolt in the room you're sitting. But if you'll keep going there in the dark, I believe God will meet you in the dark with some truth that you're like, oh my goodness, that is mine now. In a way that it never was before. Jerry Bridges in the book Vicki mentioned, Trusting God, says this about the same issue. He says, it is not that we will learn from adversity something different than what we can learn from the scriptures. Rather, adversity enhances the teaching of God's word and makes it more profitable to us. In some instances, it clarifies our understanding or causes us to see truths that we had passed over mm -hmm. before. Don't waste your suffering. Keep going to God's word in the dark, in the trial. Number two, you will wrestle with who God is. And I hope that doesn't sound inappropriate to you. Say, well, who are we to wrestle with God? Just, it could be a bad thing, but it doesn't have to be a bad thing. If you wrestle with everything you always said you believed, trust me, when you go into a, a season, not an incident, but a season of suffering or trials or darkness, it will cause you to question maybe everything, but for sure some things that you always said you believed. Right? I mean, who, if you grew up in church like I did, then you know, God is so good. And when you're five, it's easy to sing that. 
But all of a sudden, when you're in a situation that you're like, I just can't reconcile the goodness of God with this. If you, in your season of suffering or trials, begin to pick up every doctrinal or theological rock that you'd always said you believed and revisit and wrestle your way with it, and if you end up putting it back down, still believing it, you will be in a place that people who have not suffered know nothing about. There's a greater confidence, not less. Mm -hmm. There's a greater intimacy with the Lord, not less than what you had before. Wrestling with who God is doesn't have to be a bad thing. You can come out on the other side in a place that you'd never experienced before. You might know this quote by C.S. Lewis, but I think there's a lot of truth to it, where he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. God gives us pleasures. He's good. God speaks to us in our conscience. There are those times that you believe, that, that, that's God. But then he says, God shouts to us in our what? Pain. Pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Oh, when you're in pain and when you are suffering and you keep turning to God's word instead of neglecting it, it's like you have an ear that you did not have before. And I wish I could tell you this. I wish it was true. Oh, when you're born again and you become a Christian, you're alive spiritually, you're never deaf again to the things of God. Christians can go deaf. And God still has to rouse us. And he's not a mean God. He's not capricious. Mm -hmm. He's not a bad dad. But he knows that very often, another bonus, hair growing back on your head, everything going your way, is not what turns you back to him. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse. And not because he's an egomaniac. He knows our life is best when we truly are knowing him and seeking him and delighting in him and worshiping him. But very often... Apart from pain and suffering, we drift back to the things of the world and we build our worlds around the things of the world. And I really can't, I can't agree with Brad Moore. What you're thinking about God and your theology really matters as you're going through suffering. And I've had to learn to more easily recognize my wrong thinking. And this is an example. Pretend I'm in Kroger in the produce section in the bananas, just minding my own business. And all of a sudden I see... A friend of mine with her adult son. And before I've even had time to go over and say hello, my mind has raced already to, there is that lady with her adult son. And her son married a Christian. And they go to church. And they have lovely grandchildren. And tomorrow, God, I'm going to court with my son to see how this charge will affect his whole future. And then you start thinking, hmm, which one would I rather have? And you can quickly morph into self-pity. Then you start thinking things like, why don't I have what she has? Wow, Jesus, this doesn't seem fair. You say you're good, but this doesn't seem good to me. I'm missing out. Are you really good? This trial does not seem loving. And those kind of thoughts can quickly make you want to run away from God. Because when you don't trust someone, you pull away from them. You don't go toward them. So I've had to learn to realign my thinking to thoughts more like this. First of all... I don't know what's going on in that lady's life or the life of her son. It's very arrogant and prideful of me to assume that all is going well with them. Secondly, it helps me just to think clearly, God, I want you to help that lady, help her son. Because when you start praying for someone, you can't be jealous or envious of them. So sometimes just right there in that moment, Lord, Thank you that lady knows you. Thank you that her son knows you for working in his life. God, save their grandchildren early. God, lead them into a relationship with you at a young age so they don't have to have trials and suffering. God, may your kingdom be glorified through these people that I'm getting ready to talk to. Instead of just my little kingdom, we want your kingdom to be glorified. Get it outside of yourself. And then I just continue to go on. And these are several thoughts that have meant so much to me in the past few years. First of all, God, your word says you are with me right now in this situation in Kroger in the produce section. You live to make intercession for me. Do you know right now Jesus is interceding for you before the Father, and he does it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You never sleep nor slumber. You are working even now for my good. Your goodness and mercy, the word says, 
will follow me all the days of my life. I love this verse in Revelation. I don't know exactly what it means, but it has meant so much to me. It says, you put my tears in a bottle. God takes, he acknowledges, he sees your tears. They aren't wasted on him. And one day they're going to go before him. Once again, I don't know what all that means, but it comforts me that he sees our tears. You will never leave me or forsake me. The nearness of you is my good. A verse I love in Isaiah that says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So when he was on the cross, he didn't just pay for our sins in some way. And once again, this theologically just is outside my mind. I don't quite understand it, but it says he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. That when he was on the cross, he felt exactly what I feel in this trial or what you feel in your trial. And in some way, he bore that for you so that we don't have to have that sadness and that pain. And then we also have someone that knows exactly what we're going through with us. Then I just have to say, Lord, your Holy Spirit lives within me. I'm loved. You're a good and trustworthy God. And a book that's really helped me with things like this is one of my favorite books on prayer. It's by Paul Miller called The Praying Life. And basically, in summation, it's just talking to God just like I'm talking to you now. Not in a disrespectful way, in a loving, respectful way. But God wants us to run to him. But if we're not trusting him and we're becoming angry and bitter, we're going to run away from him and miss his grace. But as we understand he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother, then we'd run to him and we receive his grace and get comfort. Jim Simula had a quote that I love. It says, talk to Jesus like he's the best friend you will ever have because he is the best friend you will ever have. Suffering and trials so often can serve as a wake-up call that show us something about ourselves that was always true, we just didn't see it. We don't have the self-awareness that we tend to think about ourselves. Well, I would know me. It's me. I live with me. No. We're very self-deceived. Believe it or not, other people around us sometimes know more about us than we do. We do not have the self-awareness that we think we do. And suffering and trials can serve as a wake-up call that expose and show you, Oh my goodness, I think I placed my hope or built my joy around something or someone other than God. And I just didn't know it. You would have argued all day long. No, 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 no. It's, it's in the Lord. It's in the Lord. It's in the Lord. But then until whatever it really is in is taken or shaken, you don't really know. But when all of a sudden you're struggling to get out of bed or go on or do the next thing or serve or have joy because right now one of my kids isn't doing well or because right now I'm unemployed or because right now my finances tanked or because right now I just found out that I have prostate cancer. Sadness is appropriate. Don't hear me saying you should just say, well, praise the Lord. Praise Very the Lord. Appropriate. We're not talking about that either. It's appropriate to cry. It's appropriate to be sad. But when you just can't go on and you're shutting down, often it reveals your hope and your joy was placed somewhere else other than the Lord. You just don't know it until it's taken or shaken. Samuel Rutherford was a godly pastor in the 1600s. And there was a season there where the king and queen had made it very difficult to truly preach the gospel. It was illegal. So he was imprisoned for two years for preaching the true gospel. And he says, it was there in that prison that I learned the secret to enduring happiness. That seems like a very odd thing to say. We tend to think we're going to discover what human being doesn't want real happiness. But we don't think we're going to discover it in a prison. Listen to what he says, and I quote, If God told me, if God told me some time ago that he was about to make me as happy as I could be in this world, and, that, and then had told me that he should begin by crippling me in all my limbs and removing me from all my usual sources of enjoyment, I should have thought it a very strange mode of accomplishing his purpose. And yet, how is his wisdom manifest even in this? For if you should see a man shut up in a closed room idolizing a set of lamps and rejoicing in their light, and you wished to make him truly happy, you would begin by blowing out all his lamps and then throw open the shutters to let in the light of heaven. I hope you realize what he's saying. He's not a mean God. 
He's not a bad father. But we, you see parents sometimes that don't want to do the hard thing. And they say it's because they love their kids. But they don't love them enough. Our Heavenly Father is the best Father. And His love is a love that He will do the hard thing for us to experience the best. And so very often He sees us bowing down to the little flickering lamp of children. Children are a great gift. But He never intended you to build your world and your joy and your hope. He sees us bowing down to the lamp of money or the lamp of achievement or success or image or health or And in His goodness, He knows something about us that we struggle to admit. Unless that gets blown out, we would never turn where we should turn. And He's willing to blow out some of our lamps, to throw open the shutters for us to experience real light and life and joy that we perhaps would never have turned to until the suffering or trial arrived. Number four, you'll be forced to relinquish. I didn't get to say anything. Oh, sorry. Say something, baby. Okay. <laughs> Suffering more quickly brings to the surface what false refuges you're putting your trust in. Many times we're unaware of how much adoration and worship we are giving to people or situations until those things are removed or altered or taken away. I had made an idol out of my children, but I didn't even know it until they started to rebel and do things that horrified me. And this idol of my children was not some little wooden idol that can just be blown on and toppled. No, this was a still-framed, high-rise structured idol with vertical columns and horizontal I-beams that was rooted deep in my heart. And through a series of about a thousand tragic events, that idol came crashing down. And in Matthew, it says, about the man who built his house in the sand, it says... His house fell, and great was the fall of it. And that was exactly what happened with me with that idol. But as I look back now, I see in God's kindness and mercy, he took away and blew the lamp out of something that I was putting my hope in when really he is the only one that can bring true, lasting joy, and he's the only one that doesn't change or can't be altered. And even in my recent health crisis, I remember laying in bed one day, and just these thoughts started going through my mind like, I can't shop, I can't drive. I can't cook, I can't clean, I I can't do anything for my family now. I've become a burden to them. Why am I here? Like, what, this is, this may be how the rest of my life is. Thank goodness it hasn't been. But I'm just thinking, what, why am I here? And at that time, God had to show me, even being productive and active, I'd taken such pride in what I can do and how active I can be and how I can get things done. I had to be reminded, my identity is found in Christ alone. I am his daughter. It's not how much I can serve him or serve other people. That is more secure than any other thing. Number four, you'll be forced to relinquish control. Suffering and trials more than anything else tend to kick the props out from underneath my life, and I assume yours is similar, and reveal... Just how insufficient we are. We tend to think we're totally sufficient, totally adequate. And it's only when that's kicked out that we begin to realize, I need to depend on God as if my life depends on it. Because it really does. And we are ultimately not in control of the things that matter most to us. So in my pride, I have great ideas of basically how anything should go. What my kids will choose as a major, what friends they will choose. I even have ideas about where Brad should park the car. I don't know how he parks the car without me sometimes. I have to remind her sometimes I do this a lot all by myself. By his big boy self. Pick a spot. So for about two... No, 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 not there. We're moving on. So for about two years now... I like that I can speak sometimes now. This is my big chance. So for about two years now, we've been using this app called Waze, which is a GPS navigational system. Most of you are probably familiar with it. It tells your car the shortest route to get from point A to point B and uses live information based on current traffic, traffic patterns, wrecks, things like that. So my only problem with this app is that you have to take the route it tells you and I always think I know better. So in seventh grade, I had a teacher, Miss Davis, and it was all on map and map skills. And I just loved it. I fell in love with maps. I think, once again, it's kind of probably related to control. Because I like to know where I'm going, how to get there, how to leave there, how to not get lost. So I have a little bit of trouble with this app. 
So about three months ago, I was at the Target in Newport with my daughter, Sarah. So Sarah is the youngest of our five children. She's 20, and she's just the most laid-back person you'll ever meet. She's not into drama. She's probably cried three times in her life. I mean, she just, if she cries, you know, this is why, or you need to sit down and listen. So we were at Target, and um, we were leaving. It was 5.30, and I thought, oh, it's already, we're going to get in heavy traffic. We shopped too long. And so I typed in our home address and said, so it told me how to go. And I just immediately looked at it and thought, that just makes no sense. We're at Newport in Kentucky. We need to go south, 471, 275 west, go to Fort Wright. Now, this said go up into Cincinnati and rush hour traffic, go around, and then come back into Kentucky. And so I started telling Sarah, I'm not going to do that. So Sarah's just sitting there. All she says, all she will say, Mom, trust the system. Mom, trust the system. And then that just makes me even more mad because she's not going on and on with me about how this makes no sense to go up into Cincinnati to get back into Kentucky during rush hour traffic. So I said, well, you know, this is a problem because you need to think more for yourself. Like, this is like communism. Just trust the system. Trust the system. That's the problem with this generation. Y'all aren't taught to think. So she's just sitting there. She just won't go there with me. Mom, trust the system. She's just as calm as can be. So I thought, well, I said, well, I'm going to go my own way. So she didn't say anything. So I, 471 South, I mean, we're just flying. I'm just mocking her going, trust the system, trust the system. This is working really well for us until all of a sudden we see blue lights ahead. Cars are totally stopped, not slow, totally stopped. And she just said, Mom, I told you, you should have trusted the system. So I'm like, all right, put it back in there, our home address. And so then we etched off to the side. We got off the next exit. It said, take the south gate exit, go back across, then go back the way we should have gone to start with. So there I am, following the little purple line, doing what I'm supposed to do, trusting the system. Until we hit 7571 South, which if you know, 7571 South is always a nightmare at rush hour traffic. So once again, we're slowing down. And so I say out loud, well, obviously, this lady, we don't even know who she is, where she's from. She's never been to Northern Kentucky, probably. She doesn't know anything about this. So she doesn't know Dixie Highway. We took, and I'm saying all this out loud, we took 12th Street to Dixie Highway, and Sarah's just on her phone, calm, looking out. Mom, trust the system, trust the system. Like, no, I'm not. I'm I'm going Dixie Highway because I know this is going to be shorter. So I'm careening over six lanes of traffic. I go flying off the 12th Street exit all the way down till I suddenly stopped with me and about 500 other cars who decided not to trust the system. <laughs> and now we have to inch our way up Dixie Highway, and we were got home 10 minutes later than we had planned if we would have trusted the system. So what's the point of my story? Sarah could relax and be at peace because she was trusting the system. She was putting her faith in the system. While I frantically tried to do it my way because I thought I knew better, suffering more quickly causes us to relinquish control and to see of our great need not to trust a system, but to trust our loving Savior who is wise and good. And I know it's hard. I still struggle with it. Sometimes I just physically get on my knees and lift my hands in the air and say, Jesus, I'm trusting you. I don't understand. This makes no sense to me. But once again, it reminds me, you're God. And I'm not. And your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. I don't want my will to be done, but your will to be done. Just like Jesus prayed in the garden. That's one of my favorite prayers. It's hard for me to pray sometimes. But Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And Brad and I have a phrase that kind of captures this in a nutshell. I'm trusting the Lord with that. We'll hear something, something with one of the kids or it's happening at church or in our family. It's just like, wow, didn't see that coming. Not at all what I planned. This doesn't look good. In fact, it looks really horrific. But it's nothing within our responsibility that we should be taken care of. And there's nothing we can do about it. So I'm trusting the Lord with that. Now, I'll have you know, I'm usually about three months behind him on trusting the Lord with that. Because I like to still talk about it and just make sure that, you know, there's nothing we should be doing. He's like, I'm trusting the Lord with that. I'm like, go there with me. Like, understand, you know. But really, once again, it's such a good reminder because pretty soon you're trusting the Lord with that and that and that. And once again, it reminds me, as I said earlier, he's God and I am not. And it causes us to realize he's wise, he's loving, he's good, and we're not trusting the system, 
we're trusting our Savior. And I think, I think you probably feel the same way that we do, is even when we say that, we're just, we're trusting the Lord with that. If that sounds lame to you, you're probably young. Or you're a very frustrated older person. Those are your only two options. Because the longer you live life and the longer you walk with the Lord and the more suffering you encounter, you truly learn. There is an... Because when you're younger, it sounds like, what, you're going to do nothing? Does that mean do nothing? I mean... But there is a real place for a lot of things where you say, we are trusting the Lord with that. Let's just see what God does. Now here, I'll add this for guys though. Be, God still calls us to love our wives. So when she jokes, it's true. I am ready to trust the Lord with that way sooner than she is. And move on. And move on. And so that's the mistake I've made. Once I get my head around, this is, should be in the category of trust the Lord, then I don't want to talk about it again. Because that just gets me all worked up and pulls me down in her pit of emotional despair. And so when she tries to go there, I stand on the edge and shout down at her, No girl, ain't going down there. Been there. I'm out. Standing on the ridge of trusting God. You should too. And that's not loving. So God makes men and women differently. And earlier in our marriage, I was guilty of thinking, I'm more spiritual than her. What's her problem? We've talked all the way through this. We've got a biblical principle. We're trusting the Lord. Done. She's a woman. And that means emotionally she's worried. She can hear a song. She could see something. Something should could happen. And it just triggers. And she needs to talk it through again. And the greatest gift that I could give her, God had to teach me, you love her well, Brad, when you're willing to get back down in the... Because what, here's what I found, guys. She doesn't want to stay in the pit. No. But she does want me to sit there with her a moment and give her the dignity of, would you hear me out? Here's how I'm feeling all, all over again. And just act like you've never heard it before. Don't interrupt and say, we've talked about this, girl. Just, and, and even better, and I've got it written in my prayer journal, literally. Because I'm typical, take that hill, that kind of guy. I have written down, just say, that must be hard. And hug me. And hug her. So I'll just pull her and just say, that must be hard. Say it like you mean it. You got, sometimes I practice in front of the mirror. <laughs> Look sincere. That must be hard. Because inside I'm actually thinking, no, really, it's not. We've talked about this. We know what we should do. I tell you what's hard is revisiting this, but can't say that. It's like, that must be hard. That must be hard. You're a good mom. You're a really good mom and you're a good wife. And that is actually, I, I mean, we're, I got you laughing. I wanted you to, but hear me, guys. That's a gift of love. Mm-hmm. Remember? The Bible says live with your wife in a understanding way she's just wired differently and they don't just think things through and move on i love her well when i go through these trials with her in a way that meets her where she is i don't like it when she expects me to act like a woman do you guys but why should i expect her to act like a guy she's a woman and she's a good one is it my turn where are we I think know, but that was really sweet. Let's go to the next point. You'll need to believe that God is working on a bigger story. There's something bigger going on than your little dream or agenda. So as God takes us through trials and we choose to surrender to him and run to him instead of away from him and responding in bitterness and anger, he can begin to do a much-needed work of making us more into the image of Christ. And during some of our parenting trials, we were going through um, Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God, in our community group. And one of the questions it said was, what, are, what is a trial that you're currently in? So I just wrote one word, teenagers. And the next question said, what are some things God has taught you? I had never thought of that question before. So I sat, and as I started thinking, I just started sobbing. Because I was able to write down like 12 totally different things that God was teaching me. And it gave me such hope because I thought, this isn't just about this trial. God's doing things in our marriage with our kids. I mean, he's, it's, it's much bigger than this. And he's changing me in the process. Um, one thing he taught me was, 
I know Jesus like never before. And once again, not because I'm some spiritual woman. I'm a desperate woman. Mm-hmm. And Brad's not always there. And sometimes, if you can imagine, he's not as understanding. But Jesus is. Jesus is my best friend. I had never had, I ne- could never say that before. So that was a good thing. Um, then God just had to get a chainsaw and saw off major parts of me because I was very prideful, I was arrogant, I was judgmental for people that chose to do things differently than we did or things that they had chosen to do different ways. I just thought, mm, no, that's not the right way. Well, God just took my face for about four years and just put it lovingly in the dirt until I began to see I'm one of the most prideful, arrogant people and I begin to see it, and I begin to repent of it and say, God, change me. That's so ugly, and you resist the proud and give grace to the humble. I want to get your grace. I don't want to miss out on that. Mm-hmm. So that was a good thing God taught me, to actually learn to love others, even people that are very different than me. Another thing that God taught me was to be more merciful. Just as we've been through parenting trials, my heart goes out to people that have parenting trials. I want to love them. I want to pray for them. I want to talk to them. Just like with my, if when I see people on a walker or with a wheelchair, I mean, that, that affects me now. Because I think, that was almost me, or could be me. And everything's slower, and you have to depend on people. It's very humbling to have to p- depend on other people. I'm much more empathetic to that. Mm-hmm. And those of you that have gone through a divorce, or like Brad said, lost a spouse, or had a child die, I have no idea what that's like. But God has made me more merciful from having gone through my trials. I thought, oh, teenage trials, no big deal. Well, when you go through them, they're a big deal. So what must it be like to go through a divorce? That's much, much worse than what I've been through. So it makes you more merciful, which is a good thing. In fact, I finally have come to the place, and it's been a while now, by the, by the grace of God, that I've stopped thinking in terms of, I, I used to be guilty so often of thinking, ooh, we're in this horrible trial and this season of suffering, and so this is an interruption to all that God was doing through me and, and all that I was doing for God, and as soon as we get through this, I'll get back to what I was doing for God and what He was doing through me, and I have a totally different perspective on this now. The suffering and trials are the very thing He is doing in me and the very thing He is doing through me. It's not an interruption. It's not off to the side. It is the thing. In fact, I've been praying prayers and I I realize now the answer to some of my biggest prayers I've been praying, this is how God answered Mm -hmm. with Patchless through Station 2, with rebellious teenagers and older young adults, with a health crisis for Vicki. I've been praying, God, make me a better pastor. I was in the ministry just a couple years before. It didn't take me long to realize, all right, I love teaching. I love leading. I love planning. I love, I don't actually love people. And that would be helpful to really love people and to be sympathetic. I don't have the gift of mercy. I don't have compassion. I don't have, but you can't make that an excuse. And I just thought, I want to be more effective as a pastor. I want to be more compassionate. I want to teach in a way that really connects with people more. And I thought that I read a lot of books that it would happen through books or just a magic moment in my quiet time. How does God make you more compassionate and a better shepherd and a more effective trials and suffering? I realized that I would just lose heart easily, get discouraged way too easily, be ready to quit way too easily. And I said, Lord, I don't want to be this way my whole life. I don't want to be a sapling that's just blown over. I want to be an oak of righteousness for the display of your glory. And so I started praying, God, make me an oak of righteousness. But now think about it. How do oaks become oaks? Mm -hmm. Not by being shielded from all storms, but by experiencing a storm that bends that oak to the point of almost breaking, but not breaking. And it's forced to send its roots down deeper than ever before. And through time and through storms, a sapling becomes an oak. And I began to realize, because I'd been praying, I don't want to just impress people. You can speak in a certain way and have certain gifts and just impress people from a different distance. I said, God, I don't want to just impress people. I want to impact people for your glory. I want to see lives changed. And I have truly come to the conclusion, you can impress from a distance and from a comfortable setting. But impact happens most often at close range and in a context of pain. Close range and pain brings the biggest 
impact. So those of you that know me a little bit know I love to read books, and I still read them. Just finished up a great year of reading some great books. I'll read 30 to 50 books a year, and I think it helps me. But here's what I've decided, you guys. Reading can stir me. I love learning, and I'm stirred by something I learned. Or I'm even inspired by some dead person as I see what God helped them do or what they went through, the adversity they faced. I can be stirred, and I can be informed by reading books. But suffering and trials are what transform me. They don't just inform me. They transform me and make me more like Jesus. Oh, it's not even close. The effect that reading good books have had on my life, and I'm going to keep doing it, is not even a close second to the effect that suffering and trials have had on my life. I am so, and I'm not there, I'm not finished. I got a ways to go. But I am so different from the suffering and trials. The reading books. Now, here's what I would offer to you about reading books. The time to learn more about suffering and about the sovereignty of God and about the attributes of God and about the goodness of God, about anything, are not when you're in the middle of the trial. So to read good books, including this one right here, and to get more informed is wonderful. And then God can take that information And in suffering and trials, it becomes transformation. Some of you don't even have the information and you're in big trouble. So let reading inform you and stir you. And then as you head into a season of suffering and trials, don't fight it. Don't resist. Don't get bitter. But say, God, oh, please now. I'll never forget the day. Sure, I was praying for God to heal me. I cried out for God to heal me. And I do believe after eight years with Patch's Station Tube, and I had shared it with people all over the nation, wherever I taught, and, and so many people were praying for me and fasting. So I was asking for God to heal. Don't hear me saying that's wrong. But something that I want you to know is I'll never forget the day on Gunpowder Road as I was coming to church because it was hard for me to even get out of bed and to be with people and to do the next thing of counseling or writing a sermon or... And I remember I said, Lord, I give you my hearing. Don't take this. Now, this was not easy to say. Don't take this away until you teach me everything you want me to learn from this. Change me. Make me more like Jesus through this. Vicki read a book by some African pastors and, and shared a quote with me. And it really struck me. So I wrote it in my prayer journal and began praying about 20 years. I still pray it. They said, you Americans always pray for God to remove the trial. We pray for God to strengthen our backs to bear it for his glory. And I started praying that. Yes, God heal. But in the meantime, we tend to act like, oh, in the meantime, it's just a waste of time. No, no. In the meantime, strengthen my backs to bear it for your glory. Make me a different person. Mm -hmm. Make me more like Jesus through this. Number six, your marriage will be tested. If you're married, your marriage will be tested and stretched for God's glory. Ooh, when you go into a season of suffering and trials, if you're married, any hairline fracture that was in your marriage can become a grand canyon of separation. You'll find out all the weaknesses in your marriage. And don't be guilty of saying, oh, we had a great marriage. It's just this trial that is, no, 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 no. This has exposed where you really were can become a grand canyon of separation or it can become a season of drawing closer together than ever before. By God's grace, that was the effect on us. But but those 15 years of the parenting stuff, oh, listen, we had to talk and talk and talk and listen well to each other for hours in the bedroom to stay on the same page, right? Men and women think very differently about the kids, right? And what the next best step is. And should we help him? Should we pay for that? Should we not? Should we kick him out? Should we keep him? Should we bail him out? Should we... Woo! Right? There's a mama and there's a daddy. And they don't always think the same way. And it's like, oh, we had to listen to each other. We had to talk. But it drew us closer mm-hmm. together. Even now... Since 2017 in this trial with Vicky's health, by God's grace, I know it's God's grace, we are closer than ever before because I have needed to serve her in ways that were never needed before, ever. But I vacuum now. That was, that was, I said, what can I do? And I wanted to pay women to come in and clean the house. She's like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't want women in my house. I want you to vacuum. I'm like, all right. I mean, every Friday, I vacuum. And I mean vacuum well with the little nozzle in the corners on the steps. He does such a good job. If you're going to help, 
don't do it halfway. That's Please. not a help. That's not helpful. So I vacuum. And I mean, sometimes I know she thinks I'm going to forget, but I wrote it on my calendar. It's on every Friday, vacuum, vacuum. And I'll start it up. Sometimes she'll come out of the bedroom like, ha, I like a man that vacuums like that. I'm like, I know, girl. There'll be something left when I'm done. You get back in there and rest. You rest up, baby love. Next point. But it's my Move on. <laughs> and I can like out of time. whip that vacuum cord. <laughs> No other service got this. <laughs> Once again, third service gets the extra. Yeah, yeah. But I want you to know, you know, sometimes we all tend to think, oh, we need to travel together. And we still have hopes of maybe traveling more now that the kids are older. But often God has very different plans than what you thought of Almost what would draw always. you together. Mm-hmm. Some hobby or traveling mm-hmm. or suffering doesn't have to be a bad thing. As soon as I learned that she was in a crisis and we still didn't know what was going on, I just had a phone call from Lauren saying, saying we're going to the ER and we don't know what's wrong. She can't move her arms and legs. I just prayed and said, oh God, help. And I turned to Isaiah 26 and it says, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. I said, all right, Lord, I'm trusting in you. And the Holy Spirit immediately brought two things to my mind. Number one, I'm in this. I'm up to something good. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to use this for good. And number two, I felt like the Holy Spirit just immediately said, Brad, you've been at Grace Fellowship for 24 years. You've preached four marriage sermon series. But this will be your greatest opportunity to put on display how a man loves his wife and serves her and lays down his life like Jesus laid down his And I actually got excited. I got excited. And by God's grace, it hasn't left. Two and a half years later, and, and I'm asking God to keep it. When people email me and say, how can I pray for you? This is one of my requests. Pray for me that it will stay this way. I get excited thinking, how could I serve her? What could I do? And I want to do it before she has to ask. That's always really special. And ladies, don't, don't make me ask. I remember one day I was sitting at my computer, and this is so unlike me. She, I'd flown her to help her mom, who was having to move her dad into a, a nursing home. And it was Thursday. That is like all hands on deck. Don't knock on my door unless your head is in your hand, severed from your body. Because I must finish the sermon by 4 o'clock. It's got to go to the front office for an outline. And I'm a very scheduled person. And it's like, this is 2.30. The sermon's not done. And it's like the Holy Spirit said, if you leave right now and go to the airport, you could surprise her. And you could be at the top of the escalator and you could lift her suitcase off that little rack and you could go get in the long-term parking bus and you could give her, her your car and let her drive home. And I got so excited. And I prayed, Lord, help me find the airport. I'm terrible with directions. Help me, help me find. Swipe this together. Literally, I was praising God. Oh, so I was on that little ramp. I think I'm here and I'm in time. And, and I got to the top of the escalator and I'm looking, looking, looking. And then I see her, and of course she was surprised. And I said, I'm here to get your suitcase off the rack and to carry it to the bus and let you. And again, I don't want you to hear, oh, wow, he's amazing. He, always, I'm not amazing. But I want you to hear that. that but God has changed him tremendously. You. Oh, yeah, he's yeah. better. I'm not what I was when we married. I'm not what I hoped to be, but I'm not what I was. God is changing mm-hmm. me. And, it, and he's changing me. And some it's of this has him. happened in the context of suffering mm-hmm. and trials have brought about us being closer than ever before. Final point, you will be tempted to pull away and isolate. Oh, listen, I know it's a huge temptation. When you go into a huge season of suffering, you don't want to be around anybody that doesn't, quote, get it, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to be around anyone that doesn't get it. Oh, I can't go to small group. I don't. If you were teaching a children's mm-hmm. class, you're like, oh, Done. Can't teach, can't prep a lesson, can't do a little craft, can't wipe little noses right now. And it's the worst thing you could do. Mm-hmm. That you think, oh, I was, I was hosting a small group, we're going to stop. I was leading a small group, we're going to stop. I was teaching a kids. The temptation is to pull the lid down on your coffin of sorrow and close it. And your world shrinks down to no bigger than your trial. And you think that would help. It doesn't because now that's all you have to think about. 
Lean in to serving. Lean in to still thinking about... You can serve in a context of pain. I have preached sermons with a broken, broken heart. I have met people on different weeknights to counsel them with an aching, broken heart. They had no idea what had just happened at our home and we were going through. But I still needed to serve them. And it helps. And I know this is so hard, but it's so true what Brad's saying. While in the midst of your own pain... And struggle, you just want to do, as I say, as they say in the South, I'm from Georgia, they have a phrase that said, I'm just going to take to the bed. Ever heard that? I'm just going to take to the bed. That basically means I'm going to bed, I'm pulling the shades down, no one needs to bother me, don't expect anything from me. In fact, bring me nice southern comfort food, slide it under the door, but that's, that's all, the only time I want to see you, don't expect anything from me. And that's kind of how we feel, because in, once again, when you're in emotionally, it just emotionally and physically zaps you. All this that you're thinking and going through, you're so tired, you just want to shut down, but you can't. And like Brad said, we want to step away from our family responsibilities, our church responsibilities, but we must not. Um, And I know sometimes there's a time to come apart and rest a while, that's very biblical, but it can't lead to weeks and months and years. It's not good for you. It's not good for your soul. And Elizabeth Elliott has a saying that's better than I'm going to take to the bed. And that's, you kind of heard Brad refer to it, is do the next thing. And it was really good for me that I had a husband. I had five children. They want to eat meals. They need to have laundry done. I mean, they, I couldn't just check out. I had a church um, small group that was meeting my home every week. They were coming whether I was ready or not. But I realize now that was actually the best thing that could have happened. I, I didn't have the luxury of taking to the bed, and I'm really glad I didn't because that would have not been good for me. Just recently, about one hour before small group, we got a call from a family member, and it was just one of those things. It's just like, wow, I could have gone my whole life and never have wanted to, gotten, to get this call. But I knew we had a small group in an hour. I invited a friend that I met, or I invited a visitor that I met here at church, and she was coming, and I just thought, I do not feel like going to small group. I can't do this. So I knew I had to because I had to meet her and greet her. So we went in the car. Kathy Zimbrook now hosts our small group. And um, we drove there. I, just, I wasn't even able to speak. I was so upset. So I just held Brad's hand and I just said, Jesus, help me. And he did. I wouldn't have thought I could go, but he helped me. We went through small group, came home, slept poorly that night. Got up this morning, sat on my little couch to have my quiet time, and it was just this overwhelming sadness. And I haven't felt it much in life. It was like the third time in my life. I just felt so sad. And I thought, God, I don't, I don't want to hurt anymore. I don't want to go through any more pain. I don't want to do the next thing. I don't want to do this next step. But I sat there. I had my quiet time. Nothing or shattering. No big, great revelation. But I knew at 10 o'clock I had an um, appointment with a, another pastor's wife from another city. So for I talked to her from 10 to 11. I got off the phone and thought, you know, I feel a little better for a whole hour. I haven't been able to think about this situation. And then I ended up having lunch with a friend who had called me. We met at Chick-fil-A. So we went to Chick-fil-A. I shared with her what was going on with us. We had a, shed a few tears. But then she told me, I'm really struggling with my children. And she goes into her whole story. And we sat there for two hours. And as I left that Chick-fil-A, I can't skip anymore. But if I could, I would have skipped out of Chick-fil-A. I literally felt so much lighter. My heart was so, so unburdened. And I thought, Lord, what has changed? My circumstances are exactly the same. But it was so humbling to me to think, in the midst of my own suffering... God chose to use me. And as I'm sitting there with this mother telling her, God is good. He sees your tears. He's going to see you through this. Don't be discouraged. God has a plan. He hasn't abandoned you. As I was sitting there telling her these truths, I heard them. And God's Holy Spirit used it to heal my soul. And so once again, don't take to the bed in your trials. But instead... Get up and do the next thing. God will help you. It's better for you. It's better for your soul. And it helps you push through the trial. God, how we thank you for your grace. And Lord, thank you that grace is not frail. It doesn't require mountaintop sunshine. It's robust and hearty enough that it thrives in the dark, 
In the depths of a valley and a pit, your grace can meet us there. Strong grace. And Lord, I thank you for your word that is alive to us, even in the dark, especially in the dark. Thank you that your spirit never leaves us or forsakes us and is ready to teach us things constantly. And Lord, thank you for the privilege of a church family yes. that we get to do life together and journey together and bear one another's burdens together and encourage one another. Lord, thank you for what you have done. Thank you for what you are doing and thank you for what you will yet do. We know you're going to do some amazing things, but we know that ahead lies new suffering and new trials, but they're not random. And they're not because you're not a good father. They're a part of your perfect sovereign plan to not just inform us about biblical truth, but to transform us more and more to be like your son. Oh, use us for your glory, we pray in Jesus name. Amen.